everybody. It's good to see you. Um, we're shaking things up a bit this morning in our order of service. Um, that's why I'm talking a little bit sooner than we normally would. And the reason that we're doing that is, um, is because this morning we don't just want to talk about something. We want to actually try to take some time to practice it. Um, that's actually something we've been trying to do throughout this whole series um, on discipleship. In the first week of the series, we talked about stillness. Um, and we talked about stillness as the starting point for spiritual growth. When we're still, when we're, when we're not moving, right? When we're still, we resist our constant tendencies to either kind of go, 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 or our tendencies um, to kind of beat ourselves up for not doing enough um, in our lives. And instead, we choose to be quiet and to be patient before God. We choose to be still. And so at the end of that service in the first week of the series, we closed with a few minutes of stillness to try and practice what we were talking about. And then last week, we talked about learning, uh, learning to listen for God in those moments of stillness, specifically to listen with openness and expectation. And we learned that God's always speaking to us, but it takes a kind of courage on our part to tune in with a spirit of humility and listen with a, with, a, with a willingness to really hear what it is that he has to say. And so at the end of that um, sermon, we also spent time trying to practice listening. But today, today we're talking about something that takes more than a minute or two to really put into practice. And so what we've done is we've reorganized our time here in order to try and give, to give it a real shot. But, you know, enough suspense, right? What are we talking about? Well, after stillness, after listening, what comes next? Well, I've spent um, most of the last three weeks uh, not really interrogating that question because I knew what this sermon was supposed to be about. It was supposed to be about obedience, which made sense to me as the next thing. But after spending the first part of this week scrapping a couple drafts of this sermon that weren't working, I realized that, that, was, that that's wrong. And what comes next isn't obedience. What comes next is participation. Participation. And it turns out there's an important difference between those two things. And that difference has to do with the orientation of our heart. Here's, here's the thing. I can obey for a lot of different reasons, right? I can obey because I feel obligated. I can obey because I feel afraid. I can obey because of a prior commitment. I can obey because of a personal conviction. And when I obey... I'm choosing to do something that somebody somewhere, somehow up above me wants done. But when I participate, when I participate, especially if I'm participating with the whole of myself, I'm not only doing something, I'm also being someone. I'm not just doing something, I'm being something. I'm taking part in something. Because that's what the word participation means, right? To take part in. And so it's not just about my actions at that point. It's also about me. In a nutshell, what I want to say this morning is this. I want to say that God desires our participation and not just our obedience. In fact, God desires that so much that he's willing to suffer and endure in order to get it. And the reason that it matters so much to him, he says, is because he radically, radically 
loves everyone and everything that he's made. And he will not let those things that he made wither and rot. He will bring what he has made to life, and more than that, bring it to fruitfulness. And I and you and we, like we're included in that promise. So I want to organize our conversation today around these two questions. And those questions are number one, why are we here? And number two, how will God do it? It might not seem initially connected, but, but trust me here, this is gonna this is gonna pan out. We're gonna start with that first question. Why are we here? And I'll warn you that it's gonna get briefly philosophical, but I'll, it'll be worth it. We're gonna get somewhere. There's a big story at the end. This is gonna be all right. Just hang in there. Why are we here? One of the most clarifying books that I've ever read on this topic um, is written by, uh, this is all, man, this is just typical Kenny that's happening. And I didn't realize that when I was writing it, but now that I'm reading it. Um, okay. It's a book by a guy who is an educator, predictable, and also an activist, predictable, in Brazil, predictably, and his name was Paulo Ferreira. Any Paulo Ferreira heads out here? Hey! Anyways, Paulo Freire, um, he wrote a book that's a critique of school systems, and it's centered, um, specifically, it's a critique of the way that school systems tend to be centered on these twin sons of memorization and obedience. And the book has this, like, truly wonderful title. It's called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. That's great. That's great. In this book, Freire argues that conventional educational systems rooted in memorization and obedience are, in fact, tools for dominance, domination and the subjugation of our children. It's great. I used to teach this book to AP English students, um, and as you might guess, they loved this book because it's <laughs> like all of their suspicions in life were right all along. They were so happy. They're like, the teachers really are monsters trying to oppress them. Exactly. The principals are prison wardens. The school's a prison. They love it. It's all fun. It's all very convincing. But what becomes really interesting in this book is why, right, why Frere says that turning students into obedient citizens is a problem. Because it's one thing to simply say it, that schools do this, but it's another thing to say that doing that is bad. And here's what he says early in his book. He writes, and I actually put this quote in your program. He writes that it is true that students have the opportunity to become collectors or catalogers of the things they are taught. But in the last analysis, it is the people themselves who are filed away to the lack of creativity, transformation, and knowledge in this at best misguided system. And then here's the important passage. He writes, for apart from inquiry, apart from participation, Individuals cannot be truly human. Later, he writes that this last part, becoming truly human, isn't just a kind of pie-in-the-sky, idealistic way of talking about a student's potential or a student's curiosity. He says that becoming more truly human is actually a student's and also our, quote, ontological vocation. End quote. Now, this can be intimidating words, but I'm here to help, right? Here's what they mean. Ontology in philosophy is the study of the nature of being, which is a way of saying that it's, it's what we think about who we are 
and why we're here. That first question, why we're here. And vocation is the strongest word that we've got in the English language for being in the, in the right line of work, right? It's more than just a job. It's a way of talking about our calling. So what Frere is saying then is this. He's saying that your job and the job of all humans for which we are most rightly and fully suited is to become more truly human. It's what we're made for. It's what we're meant for. And so think about that just for a moment, right? Your reason for being here, that question that everybody always asks like the first day in any philosophy class, right? Why are we here? That question, the answer is to become more fully and more entirely who and what you are made to be, to become more human. Now, I happen to agree with Frere about this, and I think that the Bible actually testifies to precisely the same thing, but it does so with a few points of clarification and with an even greater sense of importance. Because underneath the idea that Frere is talking about here are these two crucial questions that we have to answer. And first of, the first of them is this, why am I not already fully what I am supposed to be? Why am I incomplete? And the second follows, right? How do I get there? How can it happen? Now, the Christian answers to those questions are first that we are afraid and we're insecure because of that fear. And those fears lead us to prioritize ourselves over and above other human beings and over and above the world in which we live in ways that do harm to them and then do harm to us. We're not made for that fear. But that fear can dominate us nonetheless. And it can make us, in Frere's terms, less human. And then second, we can't, the Bible's answer is that we can't actually fix that problem on our own. Because our fear problem leads us to a sin problem. And that sin problem creates this big tangle of consequences that we can't extract ourselves from without help. So, we're in a bind, right? If, if we can't do it, we know that we're not fully what we're supposed to be and we want to get to there, but we can't do it. If we can't pursue that work of becoming more truly and fully human on our own, then who can? And that gets us to that second question this morning, which was, how will he do it? The good news of the gospel is not only that God can, the good news of the gospel is that he will to talk about that, what I want to do is I want to put these, there's a lot of twos today, I didn't think of that through either, but I want to put two passages now from Scripture in conversation together, and I think they'll help us. The first of these passages is spoken by Jesus, and it's recorded in the Gospel of Luke, and it takes place in the middle of Jesus' earthly ministry, and it's part of a larger conversation that he's having in the text with the religious leaders in Jerusalem. He's always in, like, engaged in this ongoing argument with them. And he's talking to them specifically about what real life and what real fruitfulness look like. You can read along with me um, in your program here. He he says this, or this is how the, the, the account in Luke goes. Then Jesus told the crowds this parable. A man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard. And he went to look for fruit on it, but did not find any. 
So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, For three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree, and I haven't found any. So cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year, and I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. And if not, then cut it down. Now, in Jesus' context, the meaning of this parable, I think, is pretty clear. God is the owner of the vineyard, right? And, and we, human beings, we're the fig trees. And if we're being fully the fig trees that we were created to be, if we're being good fig trees, then the owner, God, is right to expect us to produce figs. That's what a fig tree is meant to do. It's sort of our whole deal, our whole job. Don't take this too literally. Your job's not just to produce more fig trees. Anyway, but you get it. You're supposed to be fruitful. But in this parable, there's something out of sorts with us, right? We're incomplete. And so the owner of the vineyard is ready to throw us out. But then this character enters into the story who's echoing the kinds of things that Jesus has been saying about himself all through the Gospel of Luke. And what he does is a very Jesus-like thing. He intercedes with the owner of the fig trees on the fig tree's behalf. He says, in fact, that what he'll do is he'll dig around it and he'll fertilize it. And then he says to the owner of the vineyard, like, let's just wait and see. Let's see what happens. Now, What's particularly notable here, of course, isn't just that the Jesus character, the, the guy who tends to fig trees here, buys this bad fig tree time. Let's not say bad. Let's say incomplete, not fully fig fig tree. The important thing is not just that he buys that tree time. The important thing is that he takes the fig tree under his care. Note what the Jesus character in the story's job is, right? He's the caretaker of the vineyard which means that the fruitfulness of the figs is tied up with his own vocation. And to extend the metaphor, our fruitfulness becomes his responsibility. So that becomes our first point of reassurance, right? If we're on this earth in order to become more fully human, which then turns out to be something we can't really do for ourselves, the really good news is that we have a caretaker who will see that work through. But, but there's an important element that's missing in this story, right? And I think you already know what it is. Where are my gardeners? Do we have gardeners? We had one frere head in the house. Do we have any gardeners? Good. What's missing in the story? We dig the trench. We fertilize. Well, what's missing? Water. Water. Exactly. The caretaker digs irrigation, the caretaker fertilizes the soil, but he can't make it rain. So let's enter story number two. And this one comes from the writings of the prophet Isaiah. And in it, Isaiah is talking about the goodness and the faithfulness of God. And God says this, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there until they have watered the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So what is the rain that can nourish the fig tree? 
It's the word, right? The word that goes out from God's mouth. His words are the water. His words are what the caretaker catches in those irrigation ditches and uses to activate that fertilizer. His words are the source of life that the caretaker utilizes to make the fig tree more fully a fig tree. Even better, right, there's a promise in that passage if we have ears to hear it because God says his words shall not return to me empty, but they shall accomplish that which I purpose and and succeed in the thing for which I sent it. When we put these two passages next to each other, we put them in conversation, the question is what do they reveal together? And I think first what they do is they reveal everybody's role, everybody's ontological vocation here in these stories, in these processes of real growth and transformation. First, God's vocation, God's ontological vocation we take here is to give life all over the place, to speak and to let his words fall on everything and everyone so that the sower will have seed and the eater will have bread. So not just to pour out life everywhere, but to pour it out for the purpose of sustenance and growth. This is blessing, I think, in the biggest sense of that word. God is generous. God is loving towards his creation. And not just haphazardly, right, but with this heart for sustenance and for life on the earth. Second, right, Jesus' vocation here. Jesus' vocation is that of the caretaker. He channels God's love into the lives of the fig trees, but not just any fig trees, but the fig trees that have withered, right? The ones that have become unproductive. Which means then that we see in that action Jesus' heart, his heart specifically for what others might have thrown away. He intercedes and steps in for those withered branches. He brings life not just where it's easy to bring life, but he brings life especially where it's hard to bring life. And then we also see our vocation, right? As the fig trees, our vocation is to be stirred and transformed. And what's beautiful to me about these passages is that they paint a picture where this action, this transformation is kind of inevitable. And it's inevitable because of the generosity of God and the compassion of Christ. The rain and the snow do not return until they have watered the earth. God's words shall not return to him empty. He will accomplish that which he purposes and succeed and that which he has chosen to do. And this, all of that, is why the sermon isn't about obedience. Because it's a sermon that's about God's work and not our work. Instead, what it's about is participation. Because the question isn't, will he make things new? The question question is, do we really want that? Do we want it? How do we join in the process of that new making. Even better, how do we delight in it? Not just join, not just obey, but delight in it as it's happening.
what if our ontological vocation, right, isn't really just about accomplishing stuff? What if our ontological vocation is about becoming somebody? The caretaker, the caretaker in the story, right, the caretaker expects to see the fruit. That's not where his focus is. His focus is on the roots. So what would it look like for us to actually go along with his work? Not to be stubborn or fearful or skeptical or disengaged, but to be present in it as it's happening. In the end, you might say, like, things are going to look basically the same, right? I have a Christian-looking life, and I do Christian-looking things. You read your Bible, and, and you give your time and your money to support the local church and the local food pantry and the local animal shelter. We, as a church, look like a church that, that worships loudly and forgives debts and loves our neighbors. We can look like all those things, but are they our delight? Are they our delight? Is it our joy to be a part of those things? Are we participating in what God is doing with or without us? Are we participating in it with all of ourselves? Do we even realize that we've been invited to participate like that? I'm glad you're here, Randy, because last week I made a reference to a story about the one time in my life that I heard God's voice, and you chimed in and said that it was a good story, and it is. But I was hesitant last week to go into detail because I didn't want that story to sound like a hero's story where I did anything special by listening particularly well. Because I didn't. The truth is that it's pretty easy to obey God's voice when God's voice is loud. But this week I want to share, I want to share, I want to actually share that story, not because it's an example about listening or acting heroically, but because it's an example of a time when I was blessed to move from merely obeying to playing one part among other parts in what God was doing with or without me. Wrote it all down because it's emotional, but I'm going to do my best. So it's been about 10 years probably since I've shared this story with you guys. But anyways, in 2009, set the stage. 2009, Meredith and I felt called to adopt. And we started that process with a local agency in South Carolina where we were living at the time. And in the year 2010, we started to wait. But there's a step in the process of adoption, which if you haven't been through it, you might not know about. And that step is that before you begin your waiting, you have to fill out a form that lists what conditions you will or you will not consider in a potential child. It's a deeply sad and deeply um, upsetting and difficult thing to do. And, and for the most part, that list has to do with things like medical conditions, particularly medical conditions that might require like lifelong um, treatment and care. And when Meredith and I filled that form out, we admitted one of our limits. We admitted, actually admitted a bunch of our limits, but specifically we admitted the limit that um, we did not have much money and my ambitions at that point were to be a teacher, so we weren't counting on ever having much money and so we admitted that we didn't have the finances to adopt a child with multiple ongoing health problems, to put it simply. Now, fast forward to March of 2010. And one day, I was at um, a job interview, and it was at a place um, that was about an hour and a half from where we lived. And while I'm at the interview, I actually like sitting with the principal of the school that I was interviewing at, um, like my phone starts blowing up, and it's 
Meredith here, her, her. <laughs> and like, she won't stop calling. Like, she calls and calls, and I'm like, we, you know where I am. <laughs> like, there's no question. But she keeps calling and keeps calling. And so, like, in the middle of this interview, after about 10 or 15 minutes of, like, the phone ringing, I, like, talked to the guy and was like, I, I hate to do I know I'm losing the job by doing this, but, like, I have to answer this phone call. Um, so I stepped out and excused myself. Um, and, of course, like, we had gotten the call. We had gotten the call. Our agency had found a potential placement. And it was a girl who was a week old. She lived in Myrtle Beach. Um, and so we were excited. And then as, you know, I'm talking to Meredith on the phone, she starts to fill me in on all the details of this match. And the details include, well, they include multiple ongoing health problems. Um, which meant, as I'm listening, that like our agency had broken our agreement. They weren't supposed to call us in that situation. And so I said no. Um, and Meredith cried, which if you know her, she knows she doesn't do often. And do you remember, are you skeptical of you crying? I remember <coughs> it. Um, and you asked me to pray about it before, so you, I said no, and then you were like, please pray about it, and we'll talk when you get home. And so I said that I would. Um, and so I finished, I went back in, we finished the interview, it went well, I thought, I didn't get that job though. Um, <laughs> And went through the whole day, and then in the afternoon, um, I left, and I started to drive home, that hour and a half drive back to Columbia, where we live. And on my way, as I'm driving, like, I remember what Meredith has said and asked me to do, and so I was like, I will obey, right? And I started to pray in the car. And almost immediately upon praying, this, like, inescapable kind of sense came over me that was like the sound of a voice, and it was saying... This is an awfully big decision for you to do while you're driving. <laughs> I was like, okay. Um, and so I like looked and I found a rest area and I like pulled over um, at this rest area off the side of the interstate and it was like 4.30 or five o'clock and it was like totally packed. It was like every spot full, people all going in and out, like milling all about. And so I like find a parking spot and I pull in. Um, but then as soon as I started, I'm like, okay, like time to obey, right? I'm going to pray. And as soon as I started to pray, I had that same sense, almost like a voice. Um, and it said, this is an awfully big decision for you to make sitting in your car. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And so I did um, what I thought I had to do. I got out of the car and I like walked through this crowded rest area with people everywhere over to a picnic table and I like sat, you know, and I like very discreetly tried to be like, <laughs> like very, very cool about it. And I like start to pray. And then again, of course, like as soon, you guys see how the story's going to go, right? Like I'm praying. And as soon as I start, I have that same sense, like this is an awfully big decision for you to just be sitting at a picnic table. And I was like, okay. Um, so I got out and I'm in a brand new suit that I just bought for this interview. And I like, get down on my knees, like at the side of the picnic table, like this, and I like lean on the seat, you know. And I'm very aware of like all the people, and I start to pray, and I'm like just so hoping that's like enough, like please be enough. <laughs> <laughs> and again, you're like, it's an awfully big decision for you just to be kneeling at a picnic table. <laughs> and I was like, okay, 
And so, again, like with a full brand new suit, I like got all the way down <laughs> in the middle of this rest area, like on my face, like this. <laughs> and, I <laughs> and I started to pray. And like the second, like instantly, the, this is the time that if I heard a voice, I heard the voice. And it just simply said to me, religion that is pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows and their distress which is James 127. And I knew what it meant. And so there's a moment where like God's word was raining on me. And then the important part of the story isn't that. It's an entertaining part. The important part of the story is this, that as I stood up and I started walking back to my car, there was a woman watching me, which is what I was afraid of. <laughs> And I was, like, horrifically embarrassed. <laughs> but as I get close, she's, like, in, I can't avoid her without being weird. And so, like, as she gets close, she looks at me and she says, that must, like, this must be something really important for you to lay down in the grass in a new suit. And so I've just been here praying for you. And so I called Meredith, and we said yes. And our daughter came home three days later. And I tell that story for the first time in a decade, not because I want you to see me in the story. Like I said, my job in that story is to obey. What I want you to see is the woman, because she participated. And this is what God wants from us all the time. In the big moments, his word rains down, and it doesn't return empty. We can do what he says when we give. But every day, there is moisture in the soil. Every day, there is water in the soil moving all around us. And we have a choice to accept it or to share in it. And if we believe in our hearts that we are loved, that Jesus is tending our roots, we can delight in who we are becoming in every moment. We can learn to feel that process of becoming more fully, to embrace how we're being shaped into somebody and into something different, something more than what we were, into being made into who we're made to be. We're becoming more fully human. And God's doing it. He's doing that sometimes whether we want him to do it or not. And participating with him in that work can be our vocation. So here's what it takes, right, to be a person becoming a person. It takes making a discipline of stillness rather than doing. It takes listening for him with real openness, even when it's hard, and with an expectation and it takes participating in the stuff that he is doing, not just in you, but the stuff that he's doing all around you, in the world. So the challenge then is, can we be like that woman? Are, are you looking for God and for his handiwork on a daily basis? Are you, are you tuned in enough to see the guy in the new suit lying on the ground at the rest area? 
and to stop what you're doing and to pray for him. Do you see your neighbor that way? Do you see the needs in the city that we live in in that way, as well as the people who are out there trying to meet those needs? Do you see them? Are, are you actively taking stock of the changes in you and then owning them or, or even celebrating them as they happen? And when we're together at times like this, are we sharing in wonder with each other about the stuff that God is up to? If our vocation is becoming, then Sunday is our chance, our chance every week to ask what's going on in our lives. Who needs a cheerleader this week? Who needs a shoulder to cry on after experiencing disappointment or loss? Together, as a church community, we can push each other to do more than just obey. We can be alive to what God is doing in us and around us all the time. Because living is the point. Being human is the point. And humans are like him. They fully human humans rejoice in the stuff he rejoices in. They feel compassion for the people that he is compassionate towards. Help those that he has promised to help. Humans participate with God in the work of God's kingdom. Not because they have to, but because they're made to. And the truth is, the truth is that God can and God will stir that sort of life in us. Question, the question is, are we really open to it? Is it what we really want?